Good morning. Thank you again, Gary, Patty, Brian. Uh, I'm so happy that they're willing to fill in as we continue to uh, search for a new worship pastor, worship leader. So let me begin with a big question, an important question. Uh, what is the purpose of this thing, the Bible? What's the purpose of the Bible? You ever thought about that? You know the answer, anybody? Thoughts? Reveals God. Just jump to the right answer right away. Don't give me some others that I can say, well, not quite. But uh, yeah, that's, that's what I think the main purpose. One of the, I mean, one of, if not the main purpose of Scripture, the Bible, God's Word, is to reveal who God is. I've often, I've often thought about, uh, and I've done it a little bit, but about just reading through the Bible, uh, one chapter, take me three years, one chapter a day, highlighting everything it reveals about God. You know, and then writing a book, I don't know, something like that. For example, in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing we learn is that God exists. It's not, you know, he, He's there and He's the creator of all things, the heavens and the earth. And then beginning in verse 3, we learn something else. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is what we see through the rest of Genesis chapter 1. God creates by speaking. Ex Nilo, Latin, out of nothing, his voice, his words created the universe. And so along with God being the creator, we learn that he speaks. He's a speaking God. He spoke and the universe came into being. And if you continue to read the Bible, you'll see that God continues to speak. He spoke to Adam, he spoke to Noah, to Abraham, Moses, prophets, and more. God reveals more and more about himself to those he created. And that brings us to our passage for today, Psalm 19, where an inspired King David describes how God continues to speak. Not how he spoke verbally to specific individuals. Uh, God can and certainly uh, can and certainly can choose to continue to do that, but that's not the norm. What we find in Psalm 19 is that God will speak to you anytime you're ready to listen. God gives us, I mean, excuse me, David gives us a, a song of tribute to God speaking to his created beings, to humanity. And from the start, we should understand uh, what that means for us. And to put, embed this in our brains from the beginning. Uh, David will describe how the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present creator of the heavens and earth has chosen to speak to us. And that certainly means we must listen. Listen to him. Does anyone remember the old uh, commercials from the stock brokerage firm E.F. Hutton? Yeah. I think those went out. Went out. If you're young, you, you don't. Ash, E.F. Hutton. You got nothing. Okay. What was the tagline? When E.F. Hutton speaks, 
people listen. Well, when the God of the universe speaks, people, you and I better listen. And not only listen, but we must take his words in. We must trust him, follow him, obey everything he says. It just makes sense. If, if God is our creator, when he speaks, we must listen and obey. Otherwise, we should not call him God. So let's listen as David describes how God has chosen to speak. Psalm 19 gives us two specific ways. First, God speaks through the skies. In verse 1, David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim his handiwork. Proclaims his handiwork. The first way God speaks is through his creation. Specifically, David is speaking about the heavens, the skies above. Look up and you'll see, you'll hear his glory, his handiwork. This is what theologians call a general revelation. Have you, have you heard of general revelation? God speaks, not verbally, but clearly. He reveals his power, his glory through his creation to all peoples everywhere. Can you picture David staring at the night sky filled with millions of lights, not knowing, as we do, that each light represents a star that is light years away? And knowing, but still knowing, however far they are, whatever they are, God has created them all. The sky has a message for all peoples. God has surrounded this world with a giant screen running a full-length movie 24-7, endless loop. Anytime you lift your eyes, the sky is saying, the sky is declaring, God is glorious. See His handiwork. See the great things He has done. A number of years ago, I was in uh, Arizona with a group, of, uh, a group from the church. During the day, we went to the Grand Canyon, which was amazingly beautiful and inspiring. Have you ever thought about this, though? The Grand Canyon is just a, a mess thing. It's erosion and stuff. It's not what it was at creation. The flood and time has eroded it. Anything we look at on this planet is not how God intended it to be originally. Just think about it. And we go, oh, man, Half Dome. Have you ever seen Half Dome? It's just this big cracked rock. But it's beautiful. Think about what it must have been when God first created. Anyway, side note. Beautiful, inspiring, uh, erosion, giant canyon. Then during the day, I mean, and then during the night, that same night, uh, this group of us sat around gazing at the night sky. It was a clear night. And we were far from the city lights, and so the stars shone brightly. I remember the conversations, how amazed we were at the beauty and mystery of what we were seeing. Because most of us are from the cities, and uh, we see a few stars here and there, but there it was just filled. The sky was filled with stars. That night, uh, people spoke. That, that night, the sky spoke to us. And this is what it said, If I am this glorious vast and inspiring, then God who made me must be even more glorious, vast and awe-inspiring. The word glory in Psalm 19 has the sense not only of greatness, of, uh, it, it ha it's, it's this word that means weighty, uh, important. Glory is the, the asset which makes people or individuals and even objects impressive. 
God has revealed how important He is through the glory of His creation. And every human being sees this display of God's glory. The skies above, along with the rest of creation, are a constant, consistent witness across time to the power and majesty of the glory of God. David makes this clear in verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Literally, every 24 hours, the sky gushes out speech like a fire hydrant. Where one day leaves off, the next day picks up. And where the day ends, the night takes over. Day and night, the witness to God's glory has been consistent, constant since the beginning of time. The witness is also comprehensive, spanning the globe. There is no speech, nor are there words, verse 3, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Language, culture, distance are not barriers. The voice of the heavens reaches the farthest corners of the globe. The sky above declares God's glory to men and women in every age and every place. David then illustrates his point by focusing in on what is, uh, from his and our perspective, the largest light in the sky, the sun. In them, the skies, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." Now let me say this, this is Hebrew poetry. This is not meant to be exact science. David didn't know all that we know today about the solar system, but today, those who do know uh, the science continue to speak of the sun rising and the sun setting. I was at the beach with a group of people last week, and even though we all know that the earth rotates around the sun, we all talked about to be sure we see the sun sunset. So don't get hung up in the science and miss the truth that David is expressing here. His desire is to declare how the, the sun rises, as it were, from a tent. It's hidden from sight during the day. He then compares the sun to a bridegroom and to a strong man. The joy of the bridegroom coming from the bridal chamber, uh, I think, represents the, just the radiance of the sun pouring forth. The strong man or the warrior rejoices in his strength as he sets out to run his course. This represents the power of the sun and and as it seems to move through the heavens. From our perspective, the sun rises and makes the circuit, makes its circuit so so that it warms the earth. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Is there anyone who doesn't see uh, the light or feel the heat of the sun? It shines in every corner of the globe with such power that that we can't even look at it. Extended exposure to its rays will burn our skin, as I found out at the beach before we looked at the sunset. It consistently rises and sets. It daily runs its course. It provides the heat, the energy that sustains life on our planet. And here's the point. With a word, God created it. With a word, God created it. 
The sun is saying, I consistently provide the energy, power, light, heat that's needed to sustain all life on planet earth. Can you even begin to fathom the power, the glory, the wisdom and majesty of the one who spoke me into existence? Any shivers here? I got a little bit. Take it in. Listen intently to what he's saying. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, you can day or night look up and see the majesty and power of God. And if you're a believer, if you're listening to him, then you can worship him. You can worship him for what the heavens are declaring. You can worship God for his greatness, his power, his majesty. You can add in his creativity and more. And if you're not a believer, know this. The Bible teaches that you're responsible for what the skies are telling you. They speak forth the glory of an awesome creator God. And you're responsible to hear and respond to what they're saying. However, and this is the tragedy, most people do not rightly respond to what the skies are saying. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1.20, you guys remember back in Romans chapter 1? We, we studied that book. He writes this, For his, his, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, the skies and more. So they, so they, unbelievers, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark, and claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is by far the most common response to the general revelation God provides. Most people do not want to see, to hear, or to face an all-powerful, glorious creator God. So they exchange his glory for things of their own creation or, or even of God's creation. Things they can understand, or at least think they can. Things they believe they can control. Animal gods. Gods who resemble men. The sun as God. Or what about Mother Nature? Our world is filled with people today who worship and serve the creature, the creation, rather than the Creator. However, this is the good news, there are those who do respond to general revelation. Those who look into the sky, they see the sun, the moon, the stars, and believe. They believe that there must be a creator God, a powerful, intelligent designer, if you will. And I want us to understand, for those who listen and respond rightly to what God is saying in the sky, whether they're part of some uh, primitive tribal group who's never heard of God, the God of the Bible, or they live in a city full of churches, If they seek to know more about the God who speaks to them through His creation, God will reveal more of Himself to them. I remember years ago having this discussion with uh, Jeannie Doherty, our founding pastor's uh, wife. We were talking about how, what about these lost tribes and stuff? And, and, And she, her perspective, and I think it bears 
bears out here is when they respond, you know, they're not saved by responding to general revelation creation, but God will send them to that, to that light. God will send them more light. This is a general principle that Jesus states in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. The Bible promises that those who truly seek God will find him or, or be found by him, if you will. I was watching a movie, what's it called? Big George Foreman. Anybody seen that? Come on. Big George. You got to know George Foreman's. And so George has this life, heavyweight champion of the world, and then he becomes a Christian. Uh, he, he gets saved. No more fighting. He actually does come back and rewin the heavyweight championship, if you know the story of George Foreman. But he goes to Muhammad Ali to ask for his forgiveness because he hated him because Muhammad Ali beat him for the heavyweight championship of the world. And George says, Muhammad, I just want you to know I found Jesus. And Muhammad rightly says, uh, I didn't know he was lost. So, so when we talk about finding him, it's really him who finds us in his grace. We see this in Acts chapter 10 with the Roman centurion Cornelius, a God-fearer. He believes in the creator God. He was seeking God. He somehow, through this Roman culture that uh, worshipped and served idols, he somehow broke through that and saw there is one true God. And God, through the apostle Peter, sent him more revelation about himself, about God. We also see this throughout missions history. There have been people and tribes who saw in creation the truth of the great and powerful creator God. Some even asked or prayed to know more about him. And God responded by sending missionaries. Missionaries who brought them further revelation of God. And where do we find this further revelation of God? Mike, Sherry? The Bible. Otherwise, they have no point. If it was all, if, if the creation could provide it all, we'd just, you know, give people binoculars. I don't know. But, but we need the Word. That's the second way Psalm 19 says that God speaks. We've seen that God speaks forth His glory, His handiwork through the skies. And then in verses 7 through 10, David tells us God speaks through the Scriptures. The sky declares God's glory, His handiwork to everyone. This again, general revelation. However, we can't know God personally through general revelation. We can know He's there. We can know He's powerful. We can know something's there. We need what theologians call special revelation. This refers specifically to God's Word, the Bible. God's Word reveals in great detail everything we need to know about God. Everything we need to know to know God. It tells us how we are to relate to Him. How we are to come to Him. It tells us how we can be saved by Him. Notice that in the first part of Psalm 19 which focuses on general revelation, uh, God's name is mentioned only once. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. David uses the general term for God here, El. However, in verses 7 through 9, he uses God's specific name, Yahweh, six times. 
uh, if you have your English Bible and you see the word LORD in all caps, that is Yahweh. I notice Sean now, every time he reads scripture or talks about it, when he sees the Lord, he just says Yahweh. I think that's a, a good thing to do. God's name, Yahweh, is connected with his uh, uh, covenant. It's connected with redeeming his people. God spoke to Moses at the burning bush when he came uh, to save Israel from the Egyptians. In this uh, bush burning speaking special revelation, God revealed himself as Yahweh, the great I am, or as Yahweh maybe literally means existing one. So David, by shifting to the name Yahweh, is saying that while the heavens teach us there is a glorious creator, a general God, if you will, the scriptures reveal to us Yahweh, our Redeemer, which he states clearly in verse 14, which we'll look at shortly. But in verses 7 through 9, David describes the perfections of God's word and its effects on God's people. He uses five synonyms for the scriptures, law, testimony, precepts, commandment, and rules. Let's look briefly at each, each of these. You guys hold on one second. I'm getting a little... I usually don't need this. Sorry. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word law is the Hebrew word Torah. Sometimes uh, we refers specifically to the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. But here it refers to all Scripture. God's Word is perfect, complete, blameless, without blemish. There's nothing missing from God's Word. It's completely sufficient. There's no error. It is wholly true in every detail. And David says God's perfect Word brings life to the, the human heart. It's reviving the soul. This phrase, reviving the soul, has a dual meaning. On the one hand, the Scripture brings our souls to life. God uses His Word to bring us new life when we're dead in our sins, restoring us and returning us to our Creator. Also, reviving the soul is used for, for food that restore, restores strength and vitality. There's a sense here with the, the, in which the law of the Lord is our spiritual food. This is, was certainly true for Jesus. When he was tempted in the wilderness, he quoted the scriptures. For example, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, Jesus said, Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The scriptures were food for Christ, and the scriptures are food for the Christian. Because second, God's word teaches us the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony, what Yahweh says is true. You can bank on it 100%, and therefore it makes wise the simple. The word simple doesn't mean the, the fool, but uh, someone who is un, uninstructed. The Lord, through his sure testimony, makes us wise and teaches us how to live. Then third, in verse 8, we read, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts refer to the truths that God has laid out in His Word, uh, which, is, which is His Word. Notice the progression here. Through His Word, God makes us alive. 
then wise, then joyful. There's a great joy in knowing and obeying the Word of God. And to joy, David adds enlightenment. Fourth, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment, what God tells us to do, is for our own good. They pure, they pure, they're pure and enlightening, the commandments of the Lord. Without God's Word, we are in darkness. We stumble through life. We walk into walls. We fall into ditches. We run into one another. However, with the light of Scripture, we see God, ourselves, our sin, our world as they truly are. Unlike the world who has rejected God's Word, we can see clearly by seeing through the lens of God's Word. As, as uh, in Psalm 119.105, the psalmist says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Which means if you, if you take it in, if you believe it, if you obey the Word of God, you will continue on the right path. And if you don't, you will inevitably become lost in left field. Then in verse 9, David gives us another result of taking in God's Word. The fear of the Lord is clear, enduring forever. So this is a little side. This isn't one of the synonyms, but he adds it here. Those who take in the Word of God will not only uh, be made alive, wise, joyful, and enlightened, they will develop a healthy, a clean fear of the Lord. The word clean often has the sense of being ritual, ritually pure. The fear of the Lord purifies God's people. And this purification endures forever, that we might enter into God's presence for all eternity. And David says, purification comes to those who fear the Lord. We like to... Uh, we like to domesticate God, right? Tame Him. God, tame God, make Him manageable. Put Him in a, in a box. Take Him out when we need Him. But the Bible teaches us that God is genuinely frightening. When Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne with the train of His robe filled, filling the temple, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am a, I, I'm lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Revelation 1.17 describes the Apostle John's encounter with the risen Christ in his glory. He writes, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, it was just, oh my gosh. Have you ever thought about, I mean, I think about it quite often about when I'm in a stand before the Lord. And, you know, I, I'm glad that I'm going to stand before him, but I'm a little nervous, you know. He's God. The great prophets, apostles, were terrified when they came face to face with the living God. God is truly fearsome, but He's also good. And He loves His children. If you know the God of the Bible, you love Him and serve Him with a deep respect and reverence. You can't play games with the Lord God. He, his glory is overwhelming. He takes your breath away. He's truly awesome. I think C.S. Lewis captures this well in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Have you read that? All right, we got some. It's, a, it's a, sort of a children's book, but you know it goes beyond that. The four children, 
uh, actually I think there was only three at the time, had heard about Aslan, the Christ figure of the book, but yet they, had, but they hadn't met him yet, and so they're asking Mr. Beaver about him. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And in the same way, Jesus, God, Yahweh, is not safe. He's gloriously dangerous, but he is oh so good. Therefore, we can and should come to him. The fear we have for God is not a fear that drives us away from him. It's a fear that should draw us to him. We come to him in respect and honor and worship. So David then ends this section with the fifth description of God's word. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's word is true. It is the truth and it's completely righteous It's right in every way. Therefore, if you listen intently to God's word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will be free to live for God now and live for him for all eternity. Amen. So after describing the great uh, perfections and purpose of God's word, David gives a, a final tribute to its value. More to be desired, verse 10, are they, the words of God, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Are you listening? Do you hear what David is saying? God's word is a great treasure. Its value cannot be overstated. I think it was just the other day, uh, someone won the latest Mega Millions lottery, $1.5 billion. I think we're getting out of control here. And this generates a lot of interest, right? I mean, people are talking about it. Oh my gosh. Christina and I, who have never bought a lottery ticket, I, I, uh, I have a degree in mathematics. I know the odds. But somebody's got to win. That's always the, the thing you say after that. Uh, but we even found ourselves talking about what we would do with, with such money, right? But let me say this. The Word of God is more to be desired than winning the lottery, no matter what the amount is. Do you believe that? Do you live like that? Do you know the pleasure that God's Word can bring to your life? Sweet honey represents the pleasure of the senses, the finest tasting food, the best smelling perfume, the most fashionable clothes, the fastest car, the latest iPhone. The Bible is far better than any of that. Again, do you feel that way? Do you love this book? Not my particular one, but the, the, the Word of God. Do you read it daily? Do you listen to it preached even now? Are you listening or are you snoozing? I don't know. Do you trust it and treasure it and obey it? If you know God, His Word will be your treasure and your pleasure. So we've seen that God speaks to everyone through the skies, and He speaks further to everyone who seeks Him through His Word. And David gives us a, a person, and then David gives us a personal testimony. 
of how God has spoken to him through his word and the benefits he's received as God speaks to his servant. If you want to know the impact God's word will have on your life when you take it in, when you believe it, when you obey it, here David gives you some insight. Verse 11, he writes, Moreover, by them, the words of God, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Here it seems David is the servant, servant representing all who serve the Lord, and he testifies to the fact that he and we are warned by God's word. The scriptures are filled with warnings of how we should live in such a way that pleases God. Uh, I mean, we could just open it and start reading some, but let's just think about the Ten Commandments. Do not worship other gods. Do not make any graven images. Don't worship idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. It's right there, Exodus chapter 20. They're all there. And David is saying that if, if we heed these warnings, not just those, but the warnings of Scripture, then life will be, our life will be kept from uh, unneeded. We'll still experience pain and sorrow. We've talked about that. But we won't be experiencing pain and sorrow because uh, we're running from God. We won't be experiencing pain and sorrow because we're rejecting God and His Word. In fact, in keeping the Word of God, there is great reward. The Lord says something similar to Joshua when He commissions him to replace Moses as the leader of Israel. He says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful. Okay, this is a warning. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Be careful. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. I mean, there are boundaries there. Don't, don't go beyond them. That you may have good success wherever you go. Reward. Warning. Reward. God rewards those who heed His warnings, who listen to and obey His word. Or certainly, and most importantly, an eternal reward, right? For all who keep His word with regard to, specifically, and we're going to talk more about this in a second, trusting in Him, trusting in Jesus Christ. But just think about the rewards you receive in this life from keeping, from living by the Word of God. They are innumerable. The Word, if, if heard and obeyed, keeps us from sin and its terrible consequences. Just consider the trouble. I mean, this might seem obvious, but uh, we avoid when we do not murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, or covet. You know, just don't do those things and you're, you're, you're partway there, Right? But more than avoiding consequences, God's Word offers other rewards for this life. Paul, Paul lists some in his letter to Timothy. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, or we could say rewarding, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word rewards... The, the word rewards us with teaching, it teaches us, it reproves us, it, it keeps us within these, the boundaries that God speaks of to Joshua, corrects us, and then it trains us in righteousness. The Word equips us for every good work. The Word encourages us and empowers us to serve God and others. The Word gives us purpose and meaning in life. There are also family rewards uh, when we keep the Word. Our marriages are strengthened. Our children have a sure foundation 
which they need in this very sinfully shifting world. There are, or at least can be, uh, workplace rewards when we keep the word. We who keep the word are, are, are known as hardworking people, honest, people with integrity. So heed the warnings and enjoy the rewards of God's word. David continues, speaking of himself, the servant of God, who can discern his errors? David is God's servant, seeking to keep his word. However, he, like we, uh, are not perfect. Who can discern his errors? Well, maybe not you, not me. Maybe even he was hiding some things from the people around him, but God sees every error, every sin. So David knows he's unable to fully keep the word of God, knowing that God sees his errors. He prays, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. What is David asking for? What does it mean to be declared innocent? Well, it's one word in the Hebrew, and it means to be made clean to be made guiltless, to be acquitted of a crime even. David is calling out for God to declare him innocent, to cleanse him, to acquit him from his hidden faults, his sin, especially those internal sins that no one else sees. David knows that keeping God's word is what he should do. It's pleasing to God. It's commanded by God. It it brings great reward. It helps to avoid a difficulty But he also knows that forgiveness, cleansing, acquittal does not come from his own efforts to keep God's Word. Why? Because unlike the Word itself, remember we said the Word is perfect, our efforts to keep it are never perfect. We fall short in so many ways. We, like David, must therefore completely rely on God's grace and mercy to declare us innocent from our hidden sins and more. David continues, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David asked God for God's intervention in his life to not just declare him innocent of the hidden sins he's committed, but to work in his life to keep him from the presumptuous sins. This should be a daily prayer for each and every one of us. If you fear the Lord, you're going to pray, God, keep me from disobeying you today. We don't just fall into sin, by the way. Oh, excuse me, God, I really didn't mean to yell at my coworker. Sorry for the, uh, the sexually explicit pictures that got on my screen. My fingers just accidentally typed in these words. For some unknown reason, my mouth just seems to be gossiping all the time. That's not how it works at all. We presumptively choose to sin. We choose to disregard God's warnings. And David prays that God would work to not allow sin to take a foothold in his life. Don't let sin have dominion over me. Don't let sin be the controlling factor in my life. David appeals to God for the strength to obey. His desire is to be blameless, innocent before God of all his great transgressions. And again, this can only take place through the grace of God. David is asking God to act in his life, to keep him from sin, and declare him innocent of the sin he's committed. He does the same thing even more clearly in Psalm 51 after his presumptuous great transgression with Bathsheba. David prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David has heard God speak in his word and he has violated that word. He did not keep the warning. He did not keep the word. He did not heed the warning. And so he turns to the Lord for forgiveness. He's placing his trust in God. He knows he can't trust in his ability to keep the word because he doesn't keep the word. But he can trust in the love and mercy of God. He's trusting that God will have mercy upon him and declare him innocent, cleanse him of his sins. And if you look at the, uh, this is homework, I guess. We're not going to do it here. If you look at the Messianic Psalms, Psalm, specifically Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, no time for that now, but all, all, all Psalms of David, you'll see that he understood that his forgiveness and cleansing and salvation would come through the coming Messiah, the anointed one of God. And we know who the Messiah is, don't we? Anybody? This what like one of those easy ones. Jesus is always the right answer. Well, it, he is. And he came to provide forgiveness. He came to provide victory over our sin. And that brings us to our final point, where we move a bit beyond Psalm 19 to see God speaks through his son. So it's, it's so interesting and profound to me that Jesus is uh, the word. John writes... Open his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then skipping down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. After speaking through the sky, through the Old Testament scriptures, really, God spoke his final word through his Son. The author of Hebrews makes this clear in the opening of his book. Verse 1, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God speaks. He reveals himself through his Son, Jesus Christ. You know, uh, we talk about what was Jesus' purpose for coming? Anybody? To reveal the Father. I mean, he certainly did the saving work too, right? But that, he was revealing the Father in that. The Father's love for us. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came to reveal the glory of God in a way that uh, we couldn't see in any other way. Jesus Christ was fully God and he was also fully man. A human being like you and me, but he lived a sinless, blameless life. He didn't have to be declared innocent. He was innocent of all sin. He was righteous before God. And the Bible teaches, uh, listen to this, that those who trust in Him, those who trust in the love and mercy of God, seen, heard, demonstrated through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, will be declared innocent. Not only that, we will be declared righteous. It's not just that we're, okay, you're a blank slate, you're innocent, you're righteous, you're right before God through Jesus Christ. And we'll be kept back from presumptuous sins. Sin will not have dominion or control in our lives. We'll be blameless and innocent of great 
all transgressions through His Son, God says, this is who I am. I love you. I died for you. I want to have relationship with you. Come to me in faith and be saved. Almost done. I know it's a little late. So God speaks His his greatest message, the gospel through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we get a hint of that in the final verse of Psalm 19. David continues his prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You know, through your love and mercy, declare me innocent and and let let what I say, what, what I think about, be acceptable to you, God. You spoke to me through the sky, through your word. Now let my speech, my words, and my heart be acceptable to you. And how is that possible? Final words, O Lord, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. David declares that the Lord Yahweh is his rock. God speaks to him and provides him with a firm foundation for life. You can hold on to God, his word, for he is not moving. He's not shifting. He's not the shifting sands. And God is not only the rock, he is the redeemer. A redeemer is one who pays our debts, who buys us back. And like David, we have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've all committed grave and great presumptuous sins. But as Keith Green sang, I wish Steve Weems was here. We could sing this together. I'm not going to do that if you remember a couple weeks ago. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son, precious lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Since Jesus lived a sinless, blameless life in God's sight, we can be redeemed. Since Jesus was innocent, He could die for sinners like you and me. God vindicated Jesus and declared that He is innocent, righteous by raising Him from the dead. Therefore, we can, we must turn to Him and be forgiven. We must be forgiven And then we must follow after Him. Jesus, the Word incarnate, our rock and redeemer, left us an example so we could follow in His steps. He speaks to us now through the Word of God. And we must continue to listen. Listen to the sky, and it will show you the existence and the glory of God. Listen to the Scripture, which reveals to you who God truly is, what God requires of you, And most importantly, the Scriptures reveal the Son of God. It's kind of like for us. I mean, some people got to see Him and the Son. You know, then then we got the, the Gospels, the New Testament, and we get to, through the New Testament Scriptures, we see the Son of God. Listen to the Son and hear of God's great sacrificial love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, and so much more that He offers those who respond to what He says with faith in Jesus Christ. God speaks, and I pray that God has been speaking to you, calling you to Himself, calling you to a life of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, calling you to a life of obedience to His Word, to what He's spoken to each one of us. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank You. Thank You that Your glory is seen by every person in the skies above in Your creation. Lord, and we pray you would work to continue to reveal yourself and that people would respond. 
people would respond by trusting and, 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 and looking toward you and wanting more to know who it is that created the, the heavens and the earth. Father, we thank you for your word and how it reveals in, in all, everything we need to know to know you. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here that we would spend time in it, that we would know how valuable, how precious, how delightful, how pleasurable it is to spend time in your word. Your word is revealing you, so we're really spending time getting to know you when we're reading your word. And so I pray we would do that. And Father, thank you most of all, I guess, for your son, your son who completed it all, your son who died in our place. Your son who speaks of your love and your mercy and your grace and your justice. Your son who has fully revealed who you are, Father. I pray we would see that and we would trust in him in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, we're not having a final song, so I get to dismiss you. So God bless you and keep you. And I have a, just an amazing announcement for you before we go. I have jury duty next week. That's so exciting. And so not just because of that, but because uh, I had talked to Ash earlier about thinking about bringing a song. To Ash, Ash has actually can I, written a book. with about. Oh, he's not so impressed with his book anymore. But anyway, uh, and so Ash is going to share the word with us next week. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> Psalm 67, right? Psalm 67. So if you want to look ahead and read that, that'd be great. God bless you as you're dismissed.